We interrupt this program to bring you the Utility Players Classified Results. Heart of Midlothian 3, East Fife 2, Scotland Football 0, Slovakia 1, Scotland Rugby 28, Italy 17, Edinburgh Rugby 10, Leinster 15, Tennessee Titans 17, Indianapolis Colts 34, Roy McElroy 11 under, Tied 5th, Tommy Fleetwood 6 under, tied 19th. And it is Alexander Mitrovic, the main man, the stepping forward. Goals galore for Serbia. But can David Marshall keep him out? Alexander Mitrovic has to score for Serbia. And Marshall has saved! Yes! One big yes! It's a happy ending for Scotland for a change! Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Well, I think it's safe to say that the Utility Players classified results probably don't actually sum up the feeling in this uh, in this podcast right now, Rory. Obviously, the the results only show the latest game that's played by our teams that we follow. And in the latest game that Scotland football played, they lost 1-0 to Slovakia. But I think there's probably a little bit of sympathy and understanding uh, from the nation. I think we'll let them off with that one. I mean, just reliving everything that happened against Serbia last Thursday just puts a smile on my face. And I, and I still smile every time I see it. And I, and I don't think that's ever going to go away. It's been such a a brilliant feeling over the past few days and you've seen all over social media how much it means to people all over Scotland and all kind of football fans across Scotland. It's been such an amazing few days for the team and yeah, not the result we wanted against Slovakia. and I was actually probably more annoyed about it than I should have been after the game but I think maybe because yeah, I've got my expectations up a lot at the moment but no, it's it's been fantastic. It's been a brilliant few days for Scottish football and something we've been missing for a very long time and I think that it's overdue having some celebrations again. For those who, who might not be aware, Scotland uh, played played two games since we last uh, recorded. Um, I said losing to Slovakia in the Nation League uh, Cup uh, in Group B. But more importantly, are going back to their first tournament 
uh, global tournament in 22 years, having beaten uh, Serbia on penalties. And for a lot of that game, uh, Rory, I think Scottish football players were thinking, it can't be this easy. It, it can't be this. They were dominating the game, but in typical Scottish fashion, the headlines were written, glorious in defeat. All these kind of headlines we're used to conceding, you know, in the, in the literally the two minutes before the end of, of full time. And, you know, it, we, I dominated the game. They really, really had. And it was just one little bit of lack of concentration. Um, you know, Scott McTominay, who's, who's, who's been made into a centre-back for the national team. We, those know he'll obviously play centre midfield for his club, Manchester United. And he's been, a, a, he's been very good at it, but potentially showed that little bit of lack of awareness in terms of uh, not having that centre-back edge, not having that centre-back sort of understanding of of defending corners, uh, got a little bit lost in low man's land, which allowed a free header. I just thought, here we go again. going to be so close and fall at the last hurdle. But two penalty shootouts required to get to the tournament. 10 from 10 from the penalty takers and David Marshall, who um, some people you know, have sort of said he is completely unsung hero. He has turned up month after month, year after year, Scotland squad after Scotland squad, you know, been the second choice goalkeeper, the third choice goalkeeper behind the likes of Craig Gordon and stuff over the years. A true servant, not complained, just got on about it, not retired from from international football and um, and is rightly getting the credit he now deserves for, for being that servant and, and making two crucial penalty saves. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. There's so much this, there's so many elements to this Scotland story which is fabulous i think and i think davy marshall as they're now calling him is the is the one that really stands out i think that's that's such an important point to make how he has been such an amazing servant to scotland for so many years and as you as you rightly pointed out was often the third choice stuck behind alan mcgregor and, and craig gordon who obviously have, have been amazing servants for scotland as well and for him to have this moment and this payback for everything he's given to the national team is it couldn't have happened to a more deserving person and, and I think 10 penalties from, from 10 in, in two shootouts says a lot about where this team's at now. They have that confident, that that level of composure and that I just, I feel that extra like focus and the preparation to practice their penalties during the week and to know, to step up with the ability and the confidence to put them away. It shows what Stevie Clark has created in this side. And, and, and as you mentioned, they played brilliantly against Serbia. They were fantastic. I mean, the only thing was they should have scored two or three and, and, and put the game to bed and, and and be done with it. And I think you're right to mention Scott McTominay, but at the same time, I think he, he was excellent. He And we, I, we saw in the Slovakia game what they miss, not having Scott McTominay at the back. I think there was a lot more passing side to side at the back and they were, were, were not getting the ball forward in the same way as when Scott McTominay plays that centre-back role. And it offers a lot to them. And yeah, he does have have to improve defensively, but he's still been a great servant in that. And he, and he came out in the interview after the game and put his hands up straight away and said, look, I made the mistake. I appreciate that. That's part of my game I'm working on. And he didn't shy away from the fact that he understood that it was his mistake and that he appreciated that he can grow and he can learn even in, in such a brilliant brilliant night for the Scotland team. So I'm, I'm just so proud. I'm so chuffed. I think we kind of were a bit doom, not doom and gloom when we talked about it in the podcast last week, but we were a bit like, had an air of trepidation because we knew Scotland loved the glorious failure. We were so close to having one and just for once to to hold on and to show a bit of composure and a bit of nous and to get over the line, it, it just feels even better having having been so close previously. I mean, the the the, the picture says a thousand words and, and uh, 
Davy Marshall making the save, and then are you talking about composure? I know this is brilliant. This ha- is brilliant. Having having the composure and the control of emotion and the awareness to not celebrate straight away. If people haven't seen this, and I'm sure you have, go and watch his reaction to the penalty save. Because the first thing he does is he looks at the officials because he knows it's being watched. You know, we've seen a number of penalties in Monday football where goalkeepers come off their line a fraction too early. There's not a bit of the boot on the line. There's a retake. It's the first thing that you know, the penalty taker looks for. They look for a second chance and a, and a rebate. And and he knew and to have that composure, because if he had gone a little bit too early, I it makes me confident in the fact that he could step up and save it again. We, we've seen in sport when you get a massive high and then you know VAR calls an offside. In American football, a flag is thrown, so a touchdown is is taken away. Uh, a catch is taken uh, in cricket, and then it's deemed to be grounded, and and the, and the air being let out of the balloon, and then having to find him. And there was a little bit of that in terms of when Scotland conceded. And going into extra time, you know, the, the the thirty minutes of extra time was was probably the worst Scotland played, and and it makes sense because they had to react to to how how well they dominated and and potentially let it slip. And I had full confidence that he would get up and save it again if that had been because he would had that composure and that awareness, and and that was brilliant to it. But the the thing for me now is we talk about his reaction to that. How does the team react? You know expectations have changed now. Um, and as you said, you were probably right. So I, I didn't watch the game against Slovakia, but the fact that as a Scotland fan, disappointed in that. We, we Scotland go again tonight against Israel. They have to win this game to win the group and and, and go up to, to Nation League's A, which, which is massive, which really is massive and gives us another opportunity if required to qualify for the World Cup, which is the route that we've taken now to get to the Euros. So, yeah, high as a kite, expectations are higher now. The team now can't. This can't be their Everest. This can't be the case of, right, we've reached it. We've got back to the the the, the global stage. That's it. Job done. The job is not done. With this group of players under Stevie Clark, with where they're at, this is base camp. This is base camp. And, and, and if if they now go to Israel and and lose, you know, three or four nil, or, or have a really poor performance and and let all this momentum slip, it's going to be a flash in the pan, and and that that can't be the case. Yeah, and I think tonight will tell us a lot about how how the the team is 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 structured and whether all the things we believe to be there are there. But I, I, I'm I'm confident that they are, and I think even. Actually, Slovakia showed, even though despite losing, showed a lot of signs that they are. I think that everything that came out of of the actual team was very good. Obviously, the Scotland social media team were celebrating the victory long after it had finished. But I think that's quite right because the fans, etc., couldn't go to pubs, they couldn't go to houses, they couldn't be in the stadium to celebrate it. So it was up to the Scotland media, social media team and the, and the media presence of the Scotland team to to take that celebration online and take it onto social media. But actually, what the, all the words that came out of the team and out of the dressing room was that they had their big celebration on the night, which they deserved, and, and nobody berated them. But then that that broke up quite naturally on the night, and then they left it on the night, and then they went to Slovakia, knowing that they had a job to be done. And actually, I think the performance showed that. Scotland played really well against Slovakia. They they dominated a lot of the ball. They created some really good chances. And I think the other thing we saw is how much they missed Lyndon Dykes, who was obviously suspended for the game. And 
Ollie McBurney took a lot of criticism. He's taken a lot of criticism over his career and he took probably the most he's ever taken after the Spaki game for missing two or three big chances that would have won that game for them. And and I'm not going to be here to criticise anyone on the Scotland team right now because I don't think they deserve that. And I don't think that after years and years of criticism, we should take this moment of, of, of positivity and turn it back into criticism. And I actually thought Ollie McBurney other than scoring a goal, played pretty well. He linked up the play really well. He brought Ryan Christie into the game. He brought Stuart Armstrong into the game. He came in and played well. And and it was a good performance for him, better than we saw when he came on an extra time where he didn't play his best. But we lacked that goal threat without without Lyndon Dykes up there, who is, who's been a revelation for Scott. He's been key to that team. And, and with him, we may have scored a couple of goals with the chances we had and won the Slovakia game and already have topped the group. So I don't think the Slovakia game is a sign that Scotland have let the air out. They have relaxed. I think they played pretty well. They, they made lots of changes, but you're right. I think the Israel game now is massive for Scotland. And I think people need to realise how massive it is because if Scotland don't win this group now, it'll have been a, a, not a catastrophe, but it'll have been a major, major letdown because they put themselves in such a good position. And they've beaten Slovakia before. They've they, Actually, they've had tough games against Israel recently, but they, they haven't lost to them for a while. They've had a couple of draws and won the time previously to that. And and there and it's it'd be great for the country to to get them into that top eight. We play in the likes of England regularly, Germany, France, Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, whoever they get drawn with when the groups come out. But they'll be in amongst those teams and they'll be they'll be testing themselves against the very best. And as you said, it will give them that extra chance to get to the World Cup. It's a wee bit harder with the World Cup because there's less teams. So winning a group doesn't guarantee you a playoff place, but winning a Group B playoff or a Tier B playoff, which Scotland does, gives them a fairly good chance of getting that playoff place because all the teams in tier A will have most likely have qualified through the usual route and therefore they won't get into this playoff place as likely to come down into the B division. So it, it gives them a much better standing if they can't get through their World Cup qualifying group, which has come out. So it's huge. And I'll be watching with not quite as much nerves as, as the Serbia game, but quite a lot of nerves because I think it's really massive that Scotland win this game tonight. Really, really is. it, And I'm sure Stevie Clark has the, uh, you know, has not let that get the best of yesterday. And as you said, you know, social media is the is the platform for celebrating at the moment. So that that brings good and bad with it. Um, you see both sides of the world. But sticking in Scotland, but, but moving sports, um, a really interesting thing Richard Cockrell said uh, yesterday. Uh, as we said, Edinburgh got well and truly gobbed by Leinster, fifty to ten. It was only last week we were singing Edinburgh's praises about the the about the culture that's being built there and uh, and, the, and the great jobs Cockrell's going. He came out and said that it's not realistic for Scotland to have two top sides competing in the Pro 14 during a pandemic. And does go on later to say that, you know, this is a flash in the pan moment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but with there being, obviously, bubbles being created around international sports um, and squads taking away the best players uh international squads taking away the best players from from club teams and they're not able to release players back if they're not involved in in say the international 23 is leaving the depth of squads for edinburgh and glasgow and this is so for this is cockle saying it's especially for edinburgh to allow them to compete and that the just the financial implications of of the pandemic are having a much greater knock-on effect to the Scottish sides than the other the other top 14 sides in that there was cuts bigger cuts made to their budgets there's player budgets um 
you know, those cuts going on all over the world. And that because of that, the the, the size of the squad and the strength of the squad is, is in a place now where they just can't compete when their international players are away. And they know they're going to lose international players, but it's one thing to lose the international players who are actually involved in game days. But then the ones who are just sitting back at the hotel who are there as, as fringe rotation players in case of injuries who are in this bubble with Gregor Townsend is is having too much of a knock-on effect compared to their uh, Irish and Welsh and Italian counterparts. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw this from Richard Cockrell. I thought it was interesting, but I think there's definitely some basis behind it. And I think the biggest thing I've noticed, certainly following Edinburgh, is that the way they've lost players since last season and a lot of their kind of fringe players who were established in the Edinburgh setup but were maybe on the fringes, were playing bits, parts here and there, coming in, covering injuries, etc. were basically let go because they couldn't afford to keep them. And now what they're relying on is a lot of academy players, a lot of emerging players who are, who are younger and are, being blunt about it, cheaper to employ for Edinburgh and, and to bring in when as and when are needed. But it means that the depth and the, and the kind of, I don't even know it's quality, but experience playing that level isn't there when they come into these games. And we mentioned... Last week, they've got Edinburgh and Glasgow have a core nucleus of Scottish players who are now involved in the national team and and probably more so than than the other nations because just by the sheer fact that there's only two teams. So if you're going to split all the national players across two teams compared to four teams in Wales or, or four teams in Ireland, that you, you, you're going to have a, a more dense group of national players playing for the team. So when you lose them, you'll lose more, more of your players and more of your teams. And then when they don't have the quality in, in reserve, to come up because they're not able to have as big squads and just pay as many players, etc., and, and they're relying on more academy type players. Then, then yeah, they are going to struggle. And but it, it's hard to I understand what Richard Cock was saying, and I think he's potentially right to allude to it. But at the same time, it's under, it's hard to it's hard to know what he really wants to get out of this. Like you can't change the situation, you can't wish more money, you can't you can't create money out of nowhere and, and, and employ more players, and you can't really I see find a way that you can get those international players back out the bubble. Because without taking them out permanently, because although they're not needed this week, they might be needed next week. And rugby is one of the sports where international sport, does, the international game, does take precedent. I mean, maybe you could say Scotland have a score smaller squad. It might be easier to call someone into a bubble than take them out again. So you maybe say they only travel with twenty six, maybe, and then knowing that they could call someone call someone up, get them through all the tests and everything and, and, and the quarantine periods and, and try to stick them in that way. I, I don't know how all these things work. I don't know the regulations, but to me, that maybe sounds like the way that's more sensible if the national team wants to invest in the interests of the club, which they should do because the clubs are vital to the national team. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting situation. I'm not really sure what the what the solution is and what, what Cockles trying to get out of this, but it is definitely interesting to be, to be discussed and, and to see how these things can take, be taken going forward. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, but for me, the two things he's potentially, or might not, not he's potentially suggested, but two potential solutions I can think of. Well, one's, one's a solution I can think of is, and I don't know the financial implications, but you've got a, a whatever it is, a four or five week window here of autumn international rugby. Why don't you put Edinburgh and Glasgow in bubbles? So you've got, so for that, for that period of time, you put all professional rugby in Scotland in bubbles. And then, so therefore, you you know that you can send players from one to another, and they're not exposing themselves out with the the realms of 
uh, of that bubble life. And, and so therefore, you, you can have movement. Now, I don't know. I, I'm assuming, obviously, that their international counterparts, so Italy last week, France this week, uh, they'll be bubbling as well, I assume. And whether other Pro 14 teams are, are, aren't bubbling, and maybe that's a pitfall, I don't know. But it seems to me that if you're wanting to have a competitive level of rugby across the board, which is, which is what you come to expect and want, then, then that, then that's a requirement for me and a solution. The other thing I, I think this is probably more what Cockrell is alluding to, subtly or unsubtly, is potentially a, a re-looking at the the structure of of the finances and and money being how money is being spent in the game at a club level. Now I, I don't know what his obviously his alternative would be, um, but obviously Edinburgh and and Glasgow are. Are strands of the SRU. They're owned by the SRU, um, which isn't the case for other club rugby around Europe. I don't know what the better model is, but when clubs and club coaches are, are hand-tied to the national team, and the national team also gets final say, and, and they should, because international sports should be the pinnacle. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But obviously, that the, the complications that then then brings with that more accountability to, to how the how the funding is spent. Do do they want competitive club teams, or are they purely just a feeder for the international team? I think there's going to be an element of both, but I think any rugby fan out there would be mortified to think if if Edinburgh and Glasgow are purely feeders for the international team, and 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 if they are, and if that is the the model, uh, and then. We can't be seeing what happened at the last World Cup where we don't make out the group stages. I think it is an element of both. I think there is definitely an element of then Edmund Glasgow's setup is is part of trying to make players better so that when they come into Scotland, they perform their best. But at the same time, I think part of that is making those teams as competitive as possible and making those teams as successful as possible. And and in, in doing so, their players are playing at the highest standard every week. They're play, They're getting drilled high yeah, high standards and good practice into them every week and they're getting used to winning because we said winning's a habit and we've seen how that has developed with, with certainly with Glasgow's success kind of preluded Scotland's I mean that's going to have that, that much success recently but they've certainly been better in the last five years than they were in the five years before that and that is a big element of that has been Glasgow and then Edinburgh becoming more competitive sides as well so I think there is an element of both I think certainly nobody at the SOU would be suggesting that they don't really care about how Glasgow and and we get on if the Scotland team on are playing well. I think that's definitely not the case. And it's interesting, but the whole system's interesting because obviously only last year the SOU pumped a lot of money into the Super Six system to increase increase the club rugby and to increase that standard below Edinburgh and Glasgow to make sure that then the players coming up into Edinburgh and Glasgow are better and to and to increase the quality across the whole system. And now that was controversial, and, and some people said it was good, some people said it was bad, and that's not what we're here to debate. But it, it shows now how things can change so easily. And if we were in a situation 12 months ago, or eight, two years ago, probably it was when the Super 6 got suggested and decided whether if they knew COVID was happening, they knew the financial issues that were going to plague the Edinburgh and the Glasgow and the professional system going forward, whether they would have used that money to Super 6 or they have used that money into, into securing up Edinburgh and Glasgow and securing more contracted players, etc. They might well have done that. But obviously, hindsight is an amazing thing. 
and this is the situation we're now in. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. It would be terribly sad to think that the SOU only sees Edinburgh and Glasgow and feed us, as feeders teams. And I, I, I really don't want to think that's the case. But obviously, we don't know the inner workings of the SOU. That's something that certainly wouldn't come out if it's the case. Um, but I don't see that because I think even if there is an element of they want the teams to be good, so the Scotland team's good, that's still success for the club teams is still a big part of that. And that's something that the SOU are going to want, I'm sure. And, you know, Richard Cockrell probably looks at the likes, especially Ireland, but Ireland and Wales, and goes, they are able to put out three, four professional club teams for the Pro 14. And the money that they put in to make that happen uh, and is obviously going to be much greater than than the money put in Scotland. Why is it that in Scotland, which has a similar, if not greater population, certainly than Wales, why why is there not the same money kicking around? I mean, I, he's not come out and said this. I, I don't know. But sitting on the outside, looking, I could see why you get frustrated that he's asked to go and compete against his Irish and Welsh counterparts in exactly the same global situation, which is a, a global pandemic and, and financial crisis on the back of that why is it that there could be a structure in ireland wales where there is depth enough to have these so these countries have three or four clubs that could compete and why is it in scotland that we can only have two i mean i know we previously tried to have three with the borders uh broader reavers back in the day etc but but why is it that we in scotland can't have a financial model that allows there to be greater numbers of, of teams. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one I've never really considered until now. But you're right. I mean, Scotland's second most populous country in the UK. Obviously, Ireland is as a combined, so that increases their their power to, to create models and stuff. So it's not quite a line like that. But internally, more populous than Wales. That's only as populous as a combined Ireland. Um, and I don't know whether it's, it's where rugby sits in our sporting model in our sporting as fans I'm, I'm not sure i mean you see wales rugby is, is very much the national sport and rugby is what the country is passionate about and, and that is where the money is etc and and you look at and you compare i think the the comparison to make is probably between rugby and football rugby rugby has a has more funding in wales it has more big clubs in it there's more of a density but the welsh professional football league is 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 probably non non-existent not non-existent but comparing the welsh professional football league to the scottish professional football league the, the scottish professional football league trumps it every time so much so that the two best welsh teams go from play the england system because the welsh system's not fit for them and in ireland it, it'd be similar i know ireland's got a lot of war competition with with its its local heritage games like gaelic football and hurling etc but but if you again rugby would be a bigger national sport in ireland than it was in scotland and i mean yeah rugby's got a great following in scotland don't get me wrong, and the fact that we fill Murrayfield every single time Scotland play is probably better than the Scotland national team do at football, to be honest. But it seems like the money in Scotland is, is still being invested into the football system and into the football league, and rugby is being left behind by that a little bit. And and it, and it doesn't seem like the priorities as a national sporting body in general is in rugby to the same extent. Now, whether that's right or wrong is a different debate. Of course it is. Because, as I mentioned there, Scotland, rugby doesn't have a massive following in Scotland. The, the Scotland national team is hugely well-followed, and and there's a lot of passion around it. And, and certainly recent improvement has, has sparked that. And you'd love to see a, a time where Aberdeen could have a, have a professional team and get another one back in the borders. Obviously, such a, a great history of rugby in the borders. And, and to have, for them to have a professional team again would be fantastic. Of course it would. But 
it seems like rugby as a, as a nation, national priority sport is, is slightly lower down if you compare it to maybe an island or a Wales where as a nation the priority is to put the money into rugby. That's so it seems to me. I don't really have any facts about that up, so I might be totally wrong in saying that, but just as an outsider looking in, that's how it certainly comes across. I mean, you're absolutely right. And and, and the, the one, and, and I'm probably, and this is very much my opinion, the one, and it is a massive downside in my mind, the one massive downside to Scotland qualifying for a, a, a football global tournament again, you know, is the, the, the gap between where football is seen as, as, as a sporting nation in this country compared to other sports is going to increase again uh, and going to increase more. The Again, I don't know the numbers, but the amount of money that is pumped into football in Scotland is, you know, so much further ahead than rugby, cricket, hockey, Olympic sports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And for so long, we've been rubbish at international football, and it's been a complete waste of money for my mind in terms of actually yeah, what you get out from what you put in. And and you look at you're right. You look at Ireland and you look at Wales, and and you you go yes that their their football structures and leagues are are, are not very good. You know, it's actually probably more than top two. You, you, you had places like Wrexham and stuff like that. They, they've they also had to play, move and play in English leagues and stuff in the past. So it's more than just Cardiff and Swansea. But yet, Wales, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland have, not regularly, but but regularly enough, made global tournaments in the last 20 years. More regularly than Scotland. Well, exactly. You know, <laughs> they, they've, they've been there and and they've competed. And, and, and you look at their team. So... It, it it really irks me that 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 as a, as a nation we get you know passion is great but it's just so so fundamentally flawed for me that if you took ten percent of the money that's taken out for football and you put it into rugby cricket hockey Olympic sports sports where Scotland punches above its weight time after time after time compared to the teams it plays against from a financial and participation level the difference it would make would be astronomical. But we, 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 we can get down that rabbit hole another time. I know you want to say one thing. I mean, this could be a whole, we could do a whole show on this. But it just for me, it really, you know, going back to what I was saying about Richard Cockrell's thing, it must be so frustrating for him to see what he's having to go up against um, and, and the climate he's working in. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I do agree with a lot of the stuff you're saying. Um, and this is more just a, a, I don't know if it's a devil's advocate point or just something that is worth mentioning. But at the same time, you mentioned all this money to be put into football, rightly or wrongly, and you said that it's a different conversation. At the same time, the SFA was in massive financial trouble before before this last international window. They'd taken out big loans to cope with the problems of the pandemic, and, and they had loans to repay that they were, it's come out that they were struggling to repay. And and they've now kind of said the extra financial boost they will get from being at the Euros, a lot of that coming from the TV rights they get from the Euros, but all sorts of other things, increased funding from all sorts of places, is it is not save the SFA, but a massive but a massive thing for them because they were struggling financially. So I, I totally get your point that we have probably invested too much in football compared to other sports. And and there is no, and there probably isn't a right or wrong answer there because there's always a loser with these things and it is really horrible that is the case and you wish it could be different. And yes, we probably have invested too much in football, but it, I also don't want it to come across that the SFA just sitting there with loads of money that's that's going wasted because it's being invested because they are struggling financially too, like everyone is. And, and that's a horrible thing. I'm not saying that I have an answer for it. I don't. And I, and I agree with everything you said, but that is something that is certainly worth being aware of also. 
moving away from Scot- Scottish sports and looking over to the Southern Hemisphere, the, the Big Bash, the men's Big Bash, gets underway shortly. And uh, Cricket Australia announced this week there's going to be three new rule changes um, to the competition, uh, trialling some new rules. I'd be really intrigued, Roy, to get your, your thoughts on what you, you, you think these are. First and foremost, the, the, the super sub, is back, or well, this time it's called a, the X Factor player. So your your twelfth and thirteenth player are, are no longer just there to to run drinks on and, and be a, a replacement sub if there's an injury or, or something like that and can't do anything else. Your twelfth or thirteenth player can actually take effect in the game, and they can actually substitute for someone who's in the eleven. They can only do that if that person has either not batted yet. So you can't have someone bat, whack 100, and then go, I'm going to substitute you, and someone else goes out and tries to whack 100. Uh, If they haven't batted yet, or if they've bowled one over or less. So if they've bowled more than one over, then that's it. They're they're locked into the game. So so that's the the first uh, uh, rule they're going to be doing. We're going to have a power surge, which is essentially looking back to a model we had a while ago, international cricket around power plays and and batting and bowling power plays. So instead of having six overs of power play at the start, uh, like normal T20, you only have four overs of power play. And then there's a second set of power plays of two overs that the batting team allocates when they want to use those two overs of batting power play. So, so for people who aren't so afraid with cricket, there's a set number of fielders that you're allowed outside a 30-yard circle that, that marks, uh, which is a 30-yard circle distance from the wicket. So basically people on the boundary. So there's, uh, there's a limit. And during these power play scenarios, you're only allowed two people on the boundary protecting the boundary from, from fours and sixes. Uh, the rest of the time, you're allowed five, five fielders out there. So obviously a big swing in the number of people protecting the boundary. So in this model... From overs 11 onwards, you take your second power play. So you can't take it in five and six. You have your four overs at the start, and then you've got your uh, power surge where you nominate. These are the two overs where we go back to only two fielders being allowed on the boundary. And the third and final one is the bash bash boost. The bash boost, which is essentially a a bit looking maybe like a rugby union where you can get bonus try. Uh, you get bonus points for for scoring four or more tries, or if you are losing bonus points if you uh, lose within seven points. They're trying to add a bonus point system, which is essentially where the team batting second, if they are above the score of the teams batting first after ten overs, they gain a bonus point. So if uh, the Sydney Sixers are batting first and after ten overs in their first innings they were uh, ninety for two, if the Melbourne Renegades are chasing and they are better than 90 for two after 10 overs, they would get a bonus point. So whatever the outcome of the game is, they've gained a point. If the senior Sixers keep the Melbourne Renegades in this scenario under 90 for two, the Sydney Sixers will get a bonus point. So if they then go on and, and, and don't defend the score and the Renegades still got it, they would still get one point out of the game. So these are the three rules. I'm sure there's, you might be, you look quite confused about some of them. I've not, I hopefully explained them well enough. So your initial thoughts on these three rule uh, changes. I don't know. I mean, first of all, and this is something you normally pick up on, they all seem very batting heavy. They all seem to be all about increasing batting capacity, which, 
you could argue is, is fair. A lot of the entertainment comes from cricket, and, and I'm probably with someone who generally tends to agree with that being a batsman myself. But you feel like they could do something to give the bowlers a bit more to work for, for having having it stripped so much away from them for so long. I, some of them sound fun and I, I'm really interested to see how they play out because there'll be a totally different dynamic of the game and it'll be really interesting to see how captains decide to use them, how coaches decide to use them, how that kind of tactical element of when's the right time to use your power boost or surge boost or whatever it is. And I mean, and, and they could be fun. The one I really don't get is the sub. And, and, and you know much more about the tactics cricket than I did. I'm interested to see what your tactical thought of this is. But I don't really get when you'd why you'd why why you'd want to make a sub, like ten overs into the first innings, because like I get it maybe at half time if you put a batsman in at number seven and he wasn't needed you can do with that extra bowler etc. I guess maybe if you're none down after ten you go well our number seven's not going to get in let's chuck a bowler in now we hope our number seven's going to get in I'm not sure but I I don't really know what what the tactical element of that sub will be off the top of my head. Um, I mean, maybe you have like a number five who's a bit more like a nerd in case you lose early wickets. But then if you don't lose early wickets, you bring the power hitter in at number five and make that sub. I'm, these are all the things that come into my mind, but I'm not really sure what that will be. And the other ones, I, I mean, I, you all want to know more, more about this. They just sound slightly gimmicky. And, 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 it, and the main thing is that I don't think the Big Bash needs it. I think the Big Bash is highly successful and highly entertaining franchise t20 tournament if it's all in, in its own right it's got everything about it it's around christmas time when everyone's ready to party and in the party spirit anyway it comes on in the morning in the uk which is perfect for here if you're, if you're not off work or whatever you get up and you watch big bash in australia it's great you go after work it's the middle of summer it's christmas time you're in celebration you see huge huge crowds at these games and it's it's i i mean people talk about the ipl and maybe that in the ipl maybe as in terms of like a, a glamour and money and everything it might be the top but for me in terms of entertainment i know a lot of people who, who rank the big bash highest for all these things i've just mentioned and it certainly competes with the ipl for being the most successful franchise tournament that exists and i don't really get why it needs to add these extra things i don't i don't i don't see currently how it's going to gain from them i don't see how it's going to improve it i mean the entertainment comes down to how well the players play at the end of the day i'm sound like i'm you here ali these are the arguments you always give but the big bash comes down from amazing batting amazing bowling tight finishes energy excitement it, it comes from these things it comes from what the the best players in the world offer on the pitch it doesn't come from having the two over power play 10 overs later than just having it at the start of the innings i mean I, of course i'm interested to see how it pans out i'm interested to see how i, I love tactics of games i'll be interested to see how the tactics play out and if it, if it, if it changes the tactics but it doesn't really feel like the big bash needs it at the moment yeah, I mean, I'm glad you used the word gimmicky because that's obviously my my thoughts. Uh, I, I going back so the sub one is interesting. I've been trying to work this out as well. The the only the only time I could see it being potentially beneficial, and I'm sure that there's there's much more intelligent cricket brains out there than me who will find ways to use it. Is is say you have you know gone th- three seamers and one genuine spinner. And an all-rounder. So, so you've got four seamers and a spinner. And you get out there and the pitch is just not played as you deemed it. And it's tacky and it's slow and it's holding. And and you and you and and you've got you know someone who's you know uh six foot five and basses it in and it's just sitting in the pitch and it's not you know flying through. 
and you might go, well, hang on a second. It's bold and over here. Realistically, it's not his kind of surface. It's not going to be beneficial for him. We're not, you know, we're going to have to kind of play around and we're not going to get the four overs out of him. But yet we've got this spinner who's our 12th or 13th player. Let's get him in there because suddenly we get three overs from this person on a wicket that's assisting that or, or vice versa. You, you, you get a spinner at the ball one over, it's skidding on, it's not quite about anything. Well, this pitch is quicker than we thought it was going to be. Let's get whoever in there who can bowl 90 miles an hour. Um, as you said as well, it might be that you get 10 overs in. And as you say, you are, you know, you're 110, 110 for one. And you think, well, our number six isn't going to bat here. And if they are, they're only going to face two balls. Let's get another bowler in there to give us another option. We've got all, you know, you know, we've got someone who whacks it, but might be not as much of a, uh, uh, might be a little bit more liability as a fielder. We've got a gun fielder, you know, who can bowl us a few overs if, if we need to sit on the sidelines. You know, because actually, if you break down cricket and T20 cricket, batters six, seven, eight are on average only going to face about 10 balls anyway. And then further down you go, the less it goes down to five balls, three balls, two balls, one ball, you know, and, and, and the lower, and batters, you know, they're now training, but because they know in the T20 game, on average, they're going to face one or two balls. So if you get off to a flyer, then obviously those those numbers decrease and decrease. So there is elements to that real depth. But for me, I, I don't see why or it would be used regularly. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, the power play one is, is completely battered friendly completely about friendly the only kind of reason i've only just thought about this while you were talking as thinking about it and it only just came to me is they're potentially trying to make it so that games don't just take one pattern of play consistently and they're trying to make it that there is a, a more of a you know, a tactical element to it, a flu and it's not just one long similar pattern of play where you go hard for the first six if you get off to fire, you keep going. If you don't, you sort of you sort of rebuild to the middle and you go again. And they're trying to sort of make it that the, the, the power play of every game isn't completely the same. Does it just mean that what's going to happen is that you're going to get this power play taken as the 19th, 20th over? You know, could it be potentially that a team, you know a team has two gun death bowlers, the two, you know, your two best Yorker bowlers in the tournament? And you know that they're going to bowl the last two. So if you go, well, if we take our batting power play in overs 13 and 14, do those two gun death bowlers now have to bowl the 13th and 14th? Because they can't just save them anymore. So there are tactical elements to it like that, um, which are going to, going to be interesting how it plays out. But it is very much batter-centric. And, and again, I, I, this bonus point one is probably similar in terms of, well... If someone's if a first team scores two twenty, and someone has come in and they have and they have scored, you know they've they've hit ninety off thirteen balls at the end, and you know after ten overs they were only on ninety odd, then suddenly does that game then become a little bit boring? If a team goes goes for it up top, it doesn't pan out, and then it's just well, it's a hiding to nothing. So whether they're trying to make it that those games that are a bit one-sided still have an element of something to play for, you know, like like you see in, in four and five-day cricket in the test 
well, not so much Test Championship, but when you see in, in Sheffield Shield in Australia, it's in the County Championship in England, that you get batting and bowling points for 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 scores you get in your first innings. Again, so been intrigued to see how it plays out. I was so against it to start with. I'm almost feel as I'm talking, I'm talking myself into being a little bit more intrigued by it, if I'm being fair. But I said I don't know how much we actually needed it. Um, I agree with what you're saying that in terms of money, the IPL is the biggest because the India is the biggest market in the world for cricket and always will be. Um, Indians don't play in, in franchise tournaments outside the IPL, so that takes away a huge amount of money, a huge amount of market in terms of from a subcontinental region. But I think globally, um, especially here in the UK and, and over in, in Australasia and in South Africa, etc., West Indies, Big Bash has, I think, as a tournament, has, has, has certainly up there as an in appeal. Anyway, on that, we will, as ever, uh, recap a number of other things that's going on in the world of sport. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. Staying in cricket, it was announced this week that England will be touring Pakistan for the first time in 16 years for a two-match T20 series. This following the MCC touring Pakistan, being the first British side to do so earlier this year. In boxing, Ireland's Katie Taylor is being hailed as the best pound-for-pound pound women's boxer of all time after she brutally beat Miriam Gutierrez at the weekend to retain her four lightweight world titles. This rounded off a great night of British boxing as Terry Harper and Rachel Ball also won world titles on the night. The Masters was completed in Augusta at the weekend with Dustin Johnson shooting four under par in his final round to win by five shots. A 20 underscore being one of the lowest we've seen in Augusta. The softer conditions in November clearly playing their part. And back to the Big Bash, the Melbourne Stars are leading the women's edition of the tournament having only lost one game. A great work for them after rain affected the start of the tournament. In American football, the Pittsburgh Steelers remain the only undefeated tide, winning nine straight to have them atop the AFC. And finally, in Formula One, Lewis Hamilton has won his seventh World Drivers' Championship, equaling Michael Schumacher's record. However, Hamilton has said there's no chance of him stopping anytime soon as he eyes up beating Schumacher's record. Well, that's going to do us for Series 3 of the Utility Players. A little bit of a different series this time round. hearing more from us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. We've certainly enjoyed it from our end. Uh, we look forward to Series 4 uh, when it comes again in a couple of weeks' time. But until then, everyone stay safe.